A very good morning to you as we have now passed the deadline for handing in notices at the end of this academic year I am going to be looking at celebrities who used to be teachers those who handed in their notice and went on to become let's be honest far more rich than we will ever be I am very happy to be back with you all this morning after a couple of weeks away. I was last week um, part of the um, Teach Meets MFL Icons event where I got to talk all about um, uh, creating student linguistic identity. Um, and I had a great time hosting my slot there as well as hearing all of the other wonderful tips and tricks from um, the uh the mfl icons team they are wonderful events teach meets in general are wonderful events it's a really good opportunity for teachers to get together to share ideas um to come up with what is ultimately best practice because that is what we all want for our children is to make sure that we are being the very best teachers for them that we can be and the best way to do that is to share our knowledge we know that you know, I've talked on the show before about how I am a social constructivist. I do believe that knowledge is socially constructed, that we take um, the information that other people have, that other people have synthesized. We synthesize it through our own worldview, our own beliefs, and we create something new. We create something better. Uh, and so I do very much rate teach meets for that, either kind of formally organized ones like the... Um, icons team do or even just within your own school you know getting together with your with your colleagues with the people in your department and sharing some things that are best practice i think that is always a really really good idea uh, so that's where i was last week and hopefully any of my um my mfl teachers who regularly listen in you joined in and you heard some of those great talks the week before that i was at uni um, as I've said before, I'm working on my educational doctorate. So I had a university weekend in Reading, which I enjoyed very much. Again, for, for exactly the same reasons. It's really interesting to meet with other people, um, not just teachers on my course. And, and so that's been really interesting to kind of consider what it means to be an educationalist. Uh, all the different types of people, the different jobs that come together in order to promote knowledge, in order to get our young people and our not so young people um, learning things. And, and that was really interesting too. I had a, a great weekend in Reading. So that's where I have been. Um, I don't foresee um any gaps in the schedule for at least for me now until the beginning of july when i take my summer holiday um but that does mean 
that we have breakfast together for six or seven more weeks yet, which is wonderful, at least for me. Um, as I said before, I do like being here and I do miss it. I do miss it when I'm not. We are on half term now. Congratulations to everybody. This is one of the rare times in England where half terms overlap. Um, I kind of didn't realise this until I became a teacher. Um, I guess because as, a, as a, a pupil in school, you don't really think very much about schools outside of your own area, um, unless you've moved around and you've got friends in, in schools in different places. Um, so it never occurred to me that schools might have holidays at different times. Um, and so it wasn't until I went into teaching that I realised that not all half terms um, not all Christmas holidays happened at exactly the same time. But of course, this is one of the rare ones that does um, because it is designed to fit around the GCSE and A-level exams, which are now in full swing. So hopefully, I'm going to say hopefully um, everyone who teaches is currently still in bed. Um, and so I have a very small audience this morning. However, I know that not to be true because I've already been on Twitter this morning and I've seen lots of teachers lamenting the fact that they were up at five, six o'clock as normal. Because it's funny how quickly our bodies get into habits, isn't it? And how difficult it can be to, um, to turn those habits off. And of course, so many teachers are pet people. Um, if you have a cat, you certainly don't get the opportunity for a lion because the cat doesn't care that you are on holiday. It knows that um, it gets fed at 6am and so it will be ready at 6am to be fed. So it's funny isn't it how we have in inverted commas all of these holidays, you know 13 weeks holidays a year or whatever it is we're told that we get. Um, however life does generally carry on during those holidays and we use them for things that um, that most other people do in evenings and weekends. So I'm going to wish the best of luck to all the doctors and dentists and DIY shops and garden centres that will be flooded with teachers over the next week, fitting in all that stuff that we can't usually do over term time. I've been thinking the kind of this week in general, but, but this morning especially, um, I've been thinking about meeting culture. I was involved early on in the week in a really productive email thread um, in my department of, of teachers organising some stuff for September. Um, as, as you know, I'm an MFL teacher. Uh, I'm a languages teacher, MFL and classics. And the European Day of Languages, the day that, that the whole of Europe celebrates linguistic diversity, always falls really, really early in the academic year. Um, it's around the 20-something of September every year. And it always seems to catch us off guard, which is crazy because we always know it's coming. You know, it's always in September, every single year, has been since it was devised. Uh, and yet, because in, you know, May and June, September seems so far away, I think we generally don't think about planning it. And then suddenly we come back in September and you get into the swing of the new school year and, and starting everything off. And then you realise, oh, European Day of Languages is next week. OK, we better do something. So we've been very organised this year. I say we, my colleagues have been very organised this year. And um, earlier in the week, a thread was started kind of discussing different ideas and things that we should do. And it was really productive. It was really, really good. 
And then we had a couple of people in the thread calling for a meeting um, to discuss the ideas. And, and that kind of stopped me in my tracks a little bit because, and this is where I'm just going to go full millennial right now. I didn't understand why we needed to have a meeting when the email thread was was being perfectly productive. And in fact, if I'm very honest, I'm not entirely sure why there needs to be an email thread when there could be a Slack um, that I could forget to check. Um, and, and I got to thinking about meetings in education and why we have them, because from my point of view, they seem largely redundant. And I'm hoping if there is anybody who is a big fan of meetings, um, any teachers out there who love them, who think they are the best thing since sliced bread, please do tell me why, uh, because I am genuinely interested. Because I personally don't see anything that can happen in a meeting that cannot happen in an email thread. Um, and the benefit of the email versus a meeting is that it's always there in my inbox, so I don't need to remember what happened. Um, I can just go and check because we always know, we always know that things come up in meetings that we swear we're going to do. You know, we're very excited about it. We are absolutely going to push ahead, make sure it gets done. And then again, a couple of days before we promised to have it done, an email comes through, have you done this yet? And you go, oh, no, because I forgot. Whereas if it's in a an email, it's just there straight away that can be checked, that can be referred back to. I also don't see how we have time for meetings, quite frankly. You know, we always as teachers complain that we are time poor. We've got so much marking to do, we've got so much lesson prep to do, photocopying, uh, whatever it might be. I'm not entirely sure why it is necessary for us to take time that we are not paid for, uh, you know, to take our lunch breaks, to take our after school, whatever it might be, and sit through a meeting. Again, particularly when these are things that can be discussed via email or just in passing. And I've been thinking about why this is. I've been thinking about why schools of all places feel this need to have meetings. And I was reminded of something that I was told back on my very first doctoral weekend, back in February, which was that there is in fact no real model for school leadership um, at all. What has happened is models for small business leadership have been taken and overlaid onto schools. So, so schools are operating like small businesses. They are told to operate like small businesses. They are informed to operate like small businesses. Um, I don't like that. I think that's awful, mostly because it makes me angry that nobody seems to care enough about school, um, about education, to create a model for school leadership that actually does get the best out of the school structure. But what it also means is that we're taking a lot of this corporate culture, a lot of these things like meetings, and we're putting them onto schools because, you know, this is how a business is supposed to be run. This is how a small business runs. And it doesn't quite gel with what schools are, in my opinion, what schools should be, what schools are setting out to do. And I think there does need to be a bit of a cultural overhaul, because the more I think about things that we complain about, 
the more I realise that it's down to the fact that we are treated as a business rather than an educational establishment. So if we take, for example, all of the um, furore that has been in educational news lately about Ofsted, um, you know, we are inspected. Fine, I'm not going to comment on that here. But there has been a lot of critique lately of schools that use their Ofsted rating uh, to sell themselves. You know, you you hang up your outstanding banner, you put it on the website, you put it in your letter header, whatever it might be. And, and that is something clearly that comes from the corporate world. This idea that your school is a small business, you are in competition with other schools, and so you want to show that you are deemed outstanding or very good, whatever it might be, by the the authority that is deemed worthy enough to judge you in order potentially to get new clients, to get new children, because we live in a time now where catchment areas are less important than they used to be. So parents do have a bit more freedom to shop around to find different schools for their children to go to. And using a small business model, schools want to get as many children in as possible because that increases their funding. League tables perform a very similar small business model um, function. You know, schools publish their league tables. Uh, sorry, school league tables are published with um, exam result percentages as a way of saying, let's be honest, these are the best schools. So the league tables are taking the exam results of the children, the hard work that the children have put in, which is not to say that teachers don't work hard during exam season, because we absolutely do. But it's it's taking the hard work of those children and using it once again to sell the school. Because we have a small business model of leadership, we have a small business model of, um, of expansion and of advertising. And, and so that's how we feel schools need to be run, how schools need to be advertised. And I don't know, I just think that's really sad. I think it's really sad that we are taking education, we are co-opting it and turning it into a business because there is no model of how to run education as education. And nobody seems to be looking into that. To be honest, this would actually be quite a good idea for a, a, a doctoral thesis. Um, if, if I understood a bit more about business, um, about how to balance business and education, that might be something that I, that I looked into because I think there is a real gap here. I think there is a, a place for change <clears throat> so that we no longer run schools as businesses but we create, we have a unique model to allow schools to run as schools. But all that to say, um, I think this is where the whole meeting culture in schools comes from. Um, because again, we are told to run our schools as businesses, because there isn't another model, there isn't another way. Uh, and we know that businesses have meetings. Um, I've never worked in business. I've never worked in an office. I actually am not sure what people do other than have meetings. Um, so again, anybody who comes from a former life as an office worker, I'd be really interested to kind of know how 
having a meeting fits with all of the other responsibilities that you have, all of the other things that you have to do. Because of course that is something, as I said, when I started my little ramble, um, that is very difficult as a teacher because you have these meetings again that are done in break times and lunch times and free periods. They are not part of your paid day and not part of your paid time. And you have to fit them in around everything else you are doing. <clears throat> and so I'd be interested to know whether the corporate world works in the same way. But that's my little ramble for, for right now. Um, I do think we need fewer meetings because I don't really see how meetings can be um, can be beneficial, quite honestly. Uh, and I think if it can be done in an email, from my point of view, that is much more respectful, not just of everybody's cognitive load so that there is less to remember, but also of their time. Because by suggesting a meeting, what you are doing is suggesting that that your want to meet with other people is more important than the time of the people that you are meeting with. Um, whereas, of course, emails can be read and referred to in a person's own time. Uh, I'm very sorry about my croaky voice. You can tell it's been a couple of weeks since I've been on air. Um, I'm not used to, to speaking for 17 minutes without somebody interrupting me to uh, ask go to the toilet. So... Yeah, that 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 is my little ramble. Fewer meetings and more emails. That is that is where I am going for today. This program has been brought to you by the Happy Confident Company. Our clinically approved, ready-to-go well-being and mental health program will help your pupils thrive. In only 10 minutes a day, you'll be able to deliver social and emotional learning and well-being tools throughout your school. To find out more, visit us at www happyconfident.com This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News The BBC features a story on the lack of guidance for teachers and schools on the issue of how to support transgender pupils the article on the news website highlights the fact that the government first promised guidance for schools in relation to transgender more than five years ago, but the Department for Education is only due to publish this term. The piece has been written by the LGBT correspondent and the LGBT producer, and it outlines the difficulty they have had finding schools who are willing to talk about transgender policies, describing it as almost impossible. They say the BBC contacted head teachers across England, but almost all were too anxious to be interviewed on camera, unwilling to draw attention to their schools or pupils who identify as trans or non-binary. Most head teachers who did respond to questions said that without guidance, schools were left to make their own decisions, with some saying this left them in a no-win situation and fearing that whatever they did, they would be criticised or even vilified. One head teacher did say that the schools wanted guidance and advice to help ensure they were making decisions in the best interests of the child. The article also referenced survey tool Teacher Tap, which had asked almost 7,000 teachers about their experiences of supporting transgender pupils. About 8% of primary school teachers said they taught trans or non-binary pupils, compared to 75% of teachers in secondary. 
Just over half said they were not very or not at all confident about next steps to take if a child said they wanted to change their name, pronouns or aspects of their appearance. The guidance is expected to address these issues, as well as the issue of how to involve parents if a child wishes to identify as a gender different to their birth sex, and what to do if a parent disagrees. When BBC News spoke to parents, it was also difficult to find a view everyone agrees with, and parents were also reluctant to speak on record. Some told the BBC they did not want any decisions made without their approval, but others wanted schools to put their child's choices first. It is expected that the Department for Education will publish a draft for consultation prior to final guidance being issued, perhaps highlighting how sensitive the issue is. It is likely the guidance will cover legal ob obligations for single-sex schools and whether schools should inform parents if their child is questioning their gender. It may offer advice on residential trips and single-sex sports. The DfE has said that the overriding principle would be that the well-being and safeguarding of children was paramount. After last week's online storm over the key stage 2 SATS reading paper, the content of the test has finally been published. It has been reported across media outlets that children had been in tears, some staff had to really think about the answers and parents were annoyed at the stress pupils faced whilst the DfE said the SATS papers were rigorously trialled. The main concerns were over the test's complexity and length, although this spread into debate about the purpose of SATS overall. Details of the test can be found on the Standards and Testing Agency website. In Wales, a plan for a million Welsh speakers by 2050 is said to be likely to fail without a substantial increase in teachers speaking the language. This is according to a Welsh Government report which focuses on the drop in the number of Welsh speakers since the census in 2011. The 2021 census also found a decrease in the number of children and young people able to speak the language. The Welsh Government funds training programmes for those who want to learn or improve their Welsh, who are teachers in schools in Wales. Finally, the BBC covers a story on words and phrases the public would like to see banned. It followed a tweet by Countdown's Susie Dent in which she asked which words people would like to see banished from the dictionary. Top of the list was the phrase going forward, followed by the other phrase no disrespect but. The word like when used as a filler word and the expression I'm not gonna lie. The list also featured my personal bugbear, sentences that begin with so. Dent used it as an opportunity to explore aspects of the English language and how some phrases which seem modern have actually been around for a long time. Details of the full top 10 are available on the BBC News website. So, going forward, I'm not gonna lie, this has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm considering how easy it is to get distracted when researching on the internet. I'm putting myself in the shoes of a young person and I've set myself a task of writing a report on the greatest invention of all time. I'm also not going to use ChatGPT. So, my first online search shows a lot of people claim the wheel is the greatest invention. And let's face it, there are a lot of them around. There are 9 million bicycles in Beijing. 
And that's a fact. That's 18 million wheels just on bikes in one city, if we assume nobody has a tricycle. This led me to want to know how many bicycles there are in the world. The answer I found was an estimated 1 billion. That's 2 billion wheels, again assuming nobody has a tricycle. Now I want to know how many wheels are there in the world. Another search tells me there's an estimated 37 billion, 24 of these billion being toys, and the next biggest share of 8.4 billion being on cars. A quick scan of the results page poses an additional question I hadn't considered. Are there more doors or wheels in the world? Well, I simply have to know. In a few clicks, I find out it's estimated there are 48 billion doors in the world. So based on this research, there are more doors and isn't a door a great invention? Yet it's not been proposed as one in my prior searches. And if there are that many doors, how many hinges must there be? The amazing thing about the internet is that there's always an answer. And the way search engines deliver those answers are designed to keep you interested and active. So potentially you see more ads and make them more money, which doesn't help get that report written, does it? Does your school teach young people how to research effectively? Do our young people realise how much they are advertised at? I'd love to hear your thoughts. As always, when I get in touch at TC Radio Official, I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Let's just talk for a minute about like as a filler word. Because um, this, to me, as a linguist, is really, really interesting. Because I think the hatred of like as a filler word has a lot of misogyny behind it, quite frankly. Um, not that I am accusing anybody who doesn't like like as a filler word of being misogynist, of course. But we have to have a look at how that word entered British English vocabulary. So it became very common uh, in Britain for like to be seen through American media in the 80s. So in the 80s, a lot of American films that we received here in the UK uh, were the kind of Brat Pack, young adult, um, Valley Girl films. And a, a common feature of that lexicon whether true or not, is the use of like as a filler. And, you know, we see that to me, the, the clearest example of that, although not from the 80s, but from the early 90s, is Clueless, where the main character, Cher Horowitz, uses the word like quite a lot as a verbal filler. That then, of course, it didn't become mainstream in British English vocabulary, but we started to have that association of the use of like as a filler with these archetypes of very overly feminine, um, usually portrayed as not the most intelligent uh, women in the world or young girls in the world, depending on, on what media you were consuming, whether you were watching the films or the, the, the children's cartoons and things like I did in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, and, and so like as a filler became kind of associated with the the idea of airheadedness, the idea of, um, you know, pink is something bad. And that became a huge theme in the 90s, kind of as, uh, as feminism as it currently is took root there was this idea that women and girls should move away from anything that was typically feminine uh anything that was typically feminine was seen as bad 
and pivoted towards being a bit edgier, towards being a bit more grunge. Um, you know, and we saw the grunge culture there in the early 90s. And it was at that point that we saw this shift in like as being a verbal filler as being something very bad because it was um it was seen as as somebody uneducated somebody who would rather spend their time shopping and getting manicures than watching arty films and that was positioned as being bad as being negative we then had um legally blonde in the early 2000s, I believe, which tried to fight back on that, where we had the main character, Elle Woods, who was very feminine, who was very girly, um, who was very pink. And she went on to Harvard Law School. And, you know, that was a whole a whole thing. And she used like a lot as a filler. But interestingly, it had become so ingrained in our culture that that using like as a filler was bad that the l herself as a character didn't have the same cultural impact to change that and then what we have noticed um particularly over the last 15 or 20 years is more british children using americanisms than ever before um, in fact i did a first aid training quite recently where we were told that um in the uk now if you phone 911, it gets redirected to 999. And they did that because so many British children didn't understand that in the UK, we don't phone 911, that's an American thing, and we phone 999. So there is so much exposure to American culture that uh, the British kids have started picking it up. And like as a filler has infiltrated into British English lexicon because of exposure to American media. And of course, that is even more prolific now than it ever was before. You know, when I was growing up in the in the 90s, in the early 2000s, we had American TV um, and we had American books, but it was always, it always felt a little bit removed. Um, you You always felt like that was America and this is Britain and they they were two separate spheres I think because the only real exposure we had was when it came on TV and when we read about it in books whereas these days because children are so bombarded with media because they have YouTube because they have Instagram they have Snapchat whatever it might be that they are using um TikTok TikTok is always the one that I forget and and the social media are global and they are predominantly American. Our children are um, influenced by these American influences and the American speech patterns. And so they've picked up like as a filler. So what we are often seeing, uh, and I've just realized that I started a sentence with so, which I do quite often, uh, so I'm gonna to apologize to Joe for that. I always start sentences with so. <laughs> but what we are seeing here is kind of an increase, I suppose, again, in like being used as a filler, like we saw back in the 80s. But we do have to be careful when we are judging it, because there is a lot of historical misogyny there. There is a lot of, um, in inverted commas, not like other girls 
mentality behind it. And I think when we start policing the words people use as fillers, and remember that verbal fillers are quite often unconscious, people tend not to be aware of the words that they choose as verbal fillers, because the purpose of a verbal filler is for you to fill the gap so that somebody else doesn't take the floor while you are thinking of what you're going to say next, which means that the verbal fillers that you use personally, verbal fillers are idiosyncratic, and the ones that you use personally are words that you are not thinking about because you're thinking about the semantic content of what comes next. And so if people are using like as a verbal filler, all that really means is that they are exposed to a lot of media or people in their real life uh, lives who use like as a filler and they've just kind of internalized that. And so by, by picking on the words that people use as fillers, we are making judgments, consciously or not, about the media they choose to consume, the people they choose to spend their time with, the way they choose to present themselves. There is so much of identity that is built up in language, and both the language we choose to use and the language we use subconsciously, that by critiquing use of language, we are quite often, um, whether we intend to or not, critiquing a person's positioning and critiquing how a person is. So just something, just something to think about there. Okay, let's get on to the crux of today's show. I pulled up this article. Um, this is a 2018 article by Ashley Moore um, from the Best Life website. And it's just called 33 Famous People Who Used To Be Teachers. I've done a show already um, on the fact that people are leaving the profession in droves. Um, I, I took a different spin um, and the show is called Why Bother Teaching? And I asked my colleagues and friends why they have stayed in teaching, why they went into teaching um, in the first place. Please do go and check that show out if you haven't already. But we know that people leave teaching. We know that in England, um, teaching a teaching career has a lifespan of five years on average and people do do get out of it very very quickly so I was interested to know kind of off the back of of my um, why bother teaching show I was interested to know what people do when they leave teaching um, and I have noticed that on LinkedIn that's a very big question people are posting a lot um, I've trained as a teacher what are my transferable skills? What can I move into when I move out of the profession? Uh, and that then led me down a bit of a, a research rabbit hole, uh, like Steve was talking about in Two Minute Tech, where I was looking at celebrities who have been teachers. And and the list that, that Ashley Moore has put together is actually really interesting. Some of them I knew, some of them are, are very famous examples of former teachers, um, some of them less so. So we're just going to kind of talk through the list, um, just for some inspiration, maybe. If you are thinking of leaving the profession and, and are thinking maybe a life of celebrity is for you, then uh, then this might give you some ideas. And you might be interested to find out what, what some people maybe you look up to have done in their former lives. So 
I'm going to be honest, I don't know all of these people, um, which again is the interesting dimension of celebrity, because someone who is a celebrity to one person isn't unknown to somebody else. Um, but hopefully enough of these people on this list uh, are, are well known that they will resonate with, with everyone who is listening. Top of the list, we have Gene Simmons. Uh, Gene Simmons was the bassist, is the bassist of the band KISS, and he was actually a sixth grade teacher, so that's year seven um, in the English system, um, in Harlem. He only taught for six months um, as KISS was getting together, as the band was forming. Um, but And he quit teaching in order to pursue his music and in order to pursue fame. Um, in an interview with The Ledger, he said, the reason I quit teaching after six months is that I discovered the real reason I became a teacher. It was because I wanted to get up on stage and have people notice me. I had to quit because the stage was too small. 40 people wasn't enough. I wanted 40,000. So Gene was very honest there in that he wanted an audience to perform to. Uh, and I suppose I can kind of see why teaching might be um might be attractive to somebody like that because you do have a captive audience you have a class of hopefully not 40 but these days it's becoming increasingly likely that it will be um they are there they they pay attention to you you are the star of the classroom you are in charge of the classroom um and as i'm sure we have all done at different points in our careers it's very easy to stand there for 45, 50 minutes, an hour, however long your class period is, and, and talk to them as if you were the star of the show. Um, kind of forgetting that it is the children who are the stars of the show, and it's them who should be doing the majority of the, of the work. Um, so yeah, I can understand why somebody who is quite extroverted, somebody who does like the attention of other people, might see teaching as a potential career because it does seem like an easy way to get that attention. Um, of course, what we all know is that children don't give us their full attention. Um, quite often they, they do not want to be there. And as I've said, they are the stars and we're not. We're just the facilitators of the knowledge. We just co-create the knowledge with them. Um, and so I can understand why somebody like Jean, who wanted to be the star, who wanted to be front and center, um, would leave the profession in order to pursue music. And, and I don't think there is anybody who can say that was a bad decision for him. Um, KISS, of course, is a very well-known uh, group. They have ridiculous record sales. They have been featured in all kinds of media. Um, you can buy action figures. You can watch Scooby-Doo cartoons featuring them. Um, the merchandising alone is worth a lot of money and so I think that does seem to have been a very um, a very good choice for him. Uh, number two on my list is one Mr Gordon Matthew Sumner who is better known by his stage name Sting. Um, he qualified as a primary school teacher and a football coach here in England um, he quit teaching after his solo career began to gain traction. And this is something that is a common theme 
among a lot of the people on this list is that they were teaching alongside doing something else. So Gene Simmons, as we as we know, was already a member of KISS while he was teaching. Sting was already producing music while he was teaching. And so there are a lot of people here who have a, a side hustle or for whom teaching was the side hustle, teaching was the day job. Um, and then they left the profession to pursue um, the, the career they actually wanted. I, I must admit, I kind of admire that because I don't know how they have time, <laughs> how they had time to, to do what is a full-time job even when you are a part-time teacher um, as a side hustle while pursuing other things. Clearly they have very good time organization skills. Um, Sting, however, has not left his, his teaching past behind. He is still very passionate about raising teacher salaries. Um, he acknowledges that teaching is one of the most important and underpaid jobs. Um, and he very much is still fighting for teachers' rights, which is always very nice. Third on my list is Miss J.K. Rowling, who taught English as a foreign language in Portugal uh, prior to writing Harry Potter. Um, there are all kinds of documentaries, podcasts, books about her life, so we don't need to go into too much detail here. It would just be rehashing things that everybody already knows. Um, but again, she was writing whilst being a teacher. So we've got somebody else who had a side hustle um, while, while teaching and was then able to spin that off into being a very successful career. Um, back in the 1960s, a young man called Sylvester Stallone was attending the American College in Switzerland. And while he was going to the college, he taught PE on the side um, in order to earn a little bit of extra spending money. Anyone who has been to Switzerland will know that it's a very expensive country. It is, in fact, I think one of the most expensive countries to live in in the world. Uh, and so I'm sure even in the 1960s, it was very necessary to have that extra money in order to um, in order to live, really. Uh, but that was one that, that surprised me. It didn't surprise me that he was a PE teacher, um, but did surprise me that he had been a teacher because I just kind of assumed he had gone straight from his studies into acting. Going back in time a little bit, um, Alexander Graham Bell, the creator of the telephone, was in fact inspired to make the phone by his work teaching deaf people. Um, he taught in uh, Connecticut. And in fact, even when he had finished, uh, sorry, other way around, even when he had created the telephone, so that was in 1876, he insisted on teaching. Um, he moved into private tuition and he taught one-to-one -one. and one of his tutees, one of his students, was in fact Helen Keller, who of course is famous for being, I, I believe, the first blind deaf person to graduate with a university degree. Robert Frost, right at the beginning of his literary career, was a teacher at the Pinkerton Academy in New Hampshire. Um, 
again, proving that children will always be children. Um, he was nicknamed the Headman by his classes because he had a huge fear of chickens. What I'm quite liking about this list so far is that Alexander Graham Bell aside, we've got writers and performers, which I think says a lot about the type of personality, the type of person who goes into teaching. Liam Neeson is number seven on the list. He trained to teach while he went to um, St Mary's in Newcastle. Um, but in something I do not condone, it is perhaps the most Liam Neeson um, thing ever. He decided not to pursue the profession after he punched a student in the face. So I do feel that that was the correct decision for him and that teaching was definitely not a job that he was cut out for. Um, in, an, in, in an interview with ESPN, he said, this particular kid did not want to settle down. He wanted to disrupt the whole class. So I went over to him and asked him to leave the room and stand outside. The next thing, he pulled a knife on me. My reaction was to punch him, which I shouldn't have done, but I felt threatened. So again, there is a story behind the story. Um, I think his reaction was quite understandable. Um, I think we all would like to say that if we were in a situation where a student pulled a knife on us, we would use our de-escalation strategies that we train in inset um, in order to calm the situation down. We don't know how we would react in that situation. Um, but I think Liam Neeson's transition then from teacher into movie star was probably a good one. Uh, number eight on the list is Mr. T, who also unsurprisingly was a PE teacher um, at the Paul Lawrence Duvar Vocational Career Academy in Chicago. Um, he taught, he then earned a scholarship to attend the Prairie View A&M University and after that, he found success as a pro wrestler and actor in the 1980s. Andy Griffith, the very well-known household name in the US, earned a Bachelor of Music at the University of North Carolina, mm -hmm. and he then taught music and drama in North Carolina before pursuing an acting career of his very own. In at number 10, we have Billy Crystal. Um, Billy Crystal moved to New York to pursue acting um, as part of a comedy trio with two, his, two of his friends. Uh, and he spent his time performing in universities and in cafes with them. But in order to earn some money, he worked as a supply teacher on Long Island. So again, we've got somebody who is using the profession as their side hustle using their profession as, as a way to earn money while they are doing other things. This is probably the most well-known um, teacher to celebrity transition story on my list, particularly for any of us who have done English University, who have studied creative writing, because we will have all used on writing as a textbook. But Stephen King um, was a teacher in Maine. Um, an English teacher, I believe. Again, at the same time, he was writing, he was submitting short stories, 
um, to, to magazines in an attempt to gain success um, as a, a pro writer. Um, he eventually penned Carrie, which found great success. It was his first best-selling novel, um, after which he quit teaching to devote himself to writing full-time. And once again, I think nobody can say that that was a bad idea because he is now at, I want to say, 60 novels. Um, and he ranks among one of the greatest novelists of all time. And this is alongside the screenplays that he writes, the treatments of his own work for film and TV, all sorts of cool stuff Stephen King gets up to. This one I didn't know um, and found very interesting. Hugh Jackman was a teacher. He also taught PE. <laughs> There's a theme here, uh, particularly among our action stars. Um, so, you know, any aspiring action star PE teachers out there who are listening, um, hopefully this is giving you the, the oomph that you need to know that your dreams can come true. But yeah, Hugh Jackman taught PE in um, Uppingham School here in England. Um, he actually still recognises some of his old students. Um, during an interview, he said that uh, he wanted to know how this student's PE is progressing. It's very important to me. And I think that's quite nice. You know, it is nice when you bump into old students. Um, and given all of the the thousands, if not millions of people, Hugh Jackman must meet every year doing um, interviews, doing press tours, all the stuff that he has to do. To be able to put a, to be able to place the face, to be able to recognize an old student, I think is, is really very lovely. Cheryl Crow is our next one. She majored in music education at the University of Missouri at Columbia. Um, she taught music at an elementary school um, before moving to LA to pursue her solo career in 1986. Now this is quite interesting because I saw an Instagram reel um, of an elementary music teacher in the US uh, earlier this week and it showed that as part of her elementary music education degree she had to be able to perform at um, you know at a, a professional level. So the the clip is this woman singing beautifully at a packed out auditorium and then cuts to her singing Baby Shark with her class. And I think quite often that's something people forget about us, is that we are highly skilled, uh, not just pedagogically, but also in our specialisms in the subjects that we find most interesting. We have a lot of knowledge, we have a lot of talent. And as I said on the show a couple of weeks ago, part of our talent is making the things that we are extraordinarily good at accessible for beginners. And, and sometimes I think it can get lost along the way exactly how good we are in our specialisms because the point of us is to make it accessible. And quite often in making things accessible, hopefully you make it look easy. John Hamm is next on our list. Star of Mad Men, uh, star of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. He took a job as a drama teacher 
um, at the John Burroughs School. While there, he actually taught Ellie Kemper, with whom he would go on to star in Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, um, and he became close friends with Paul Rudd. Number 15 on our list, so not quite halfway yet, we have Mr. Eric Arthur Blair, who is known to most by his pen name, George Orwell. Um, he taught in West London while he was working on his novel, A Scullion's Diary, um, which is all about the, the times he attempted to have himself arrested. <laughs> so again, somebody who these days would not make the cut, I think, onto a teacher training programme, um, but who did teach before gaining a lot of success as an author. When Hillary Clinton moved to Arkansas in 1974, she secured a job at the University of Arkansas teaching criminal law, uh, where she was one of only two female members of the faculty. So making strides there, not just in terms of showing off an education and showing off knowledge, uh, but also in terms of women's rights and um, expanding the view of what women can and should be doing. This programme has been brought to you by The Happy Confident Company. Our clinically approved, ready-to-go wellbeing and mental health programme will help your pupils thrive. In only 10 minutes a day, you'll be able to deliver social and emotional learning and wellbeing tools throughout your school. To find out more, visit us at www.happyconfident.com. Continuing with a run of US um, political figures, Barack Obama is our next one. He spent 12 years teaching constitutional law and race theory at the University of Chicago Law School. Um, he was, according to his students, diplomatic as a teacher, but also challenging. Uh, and he would push both liberal and conservative students to assess their own views and their own political leanings. Um, Lyndon B. Johnson, who was another former president of the US, was teaching in Texas in 1928. Um, he taught on the border of Mexico and the US, um, which meant that there was a language barrier there because many of his students only spoke Spanish. Uh, but Lyndon B. Johnson proved himself to be an enthusiastic and inspiring teacher. He taught um, speech and debate tournaments in order to help his students improve their knowledge of English. This work seems to be quite fundamental towards the work that he did as a president in the US because he passed the Elementary and Secondary Education Act in 1965 which allowed um, federal aid, which, which gave money, essentially, um, to the younger grades in order to ensure that every child had a quality education. So, you know, funding is very, very important in schools. We know that funding is very important in schools. Schools are not often funded in the way that they ought to be. And I think this shows how important it is to have people who have been teachers involved in decisions about school at a government level. Because if we look at governments, particularly at the moment, 
it can be difficult to find anybody at a government level who has been a teacher and is involved in education, who is involved in policy. And it is important, in my opinion, to have somebody who understands. Another former US president, in fact, the very second US president ever, John Adams, um, he taught in the Central School of Worcester straight after graduating from Harvard. Um, he, he admitted to finding the job boring and unfulfilling. So he only actually taught for a year. Uh, he quit the profession in 1756 in order to pursue law. I really hope that he found law and ultimately presidency to be a more fulfilling career than he did teaching. Jimmy Carter also taught. So there does seem to be a, a pull to towards the Oval Office for American teachers. So again, if I have any of my US teacher friends listening, you know, aim high because there is, there is a precedent within your presidents right now. Um, Jimmy Carter actually went the other way around though. He started teaching after his presidency ended. Um, and even at the time of writing this article, so in 2018, um, he was 94 years old and he was still teaching Sunday school uh, in Georgia. Um, apparently his teachings at this Sunday school was so popular that people would travel thousands of miles in order to see his lectures, which, uh, which I think is very cool. I think we would all as teachers be very proud to feel that our lessons were interesting enough to draw such big crowds. Whether it was his, um, his teaching style or whether it was his content, or whether it was the fact that he was former President Jimmy Carter that was the draw has yet to be seen. Um, but I think that is an inspiration there for so many of us. Um, Gabriel Byrne, I hope I've pronounced that name correctly. This is, this is uh, somebody on the list that I don't know. Uh, he's an Irish soap star. Um, he has been on popular Irish shows such as The Riordans and Bracken. Uh, and he was a Spanish and history teacher in Dublin. Brian May is the next star on our list. Um, one of the most prolific guitarists, of course. Um, the, the lead guitarist of Queen. He taught maths in Brixton in London before he found success as a musician. He is, of course, Dr. Brian May, very, very clever man, very intelligent man, which hopefully goes on to dispel a few myths. Um, of course, most pertinent for us is the myth of um, those who can do, those who can't teach, uh, because he did and he taught, but also this idea that people go into the entertainment industry um, because they can't do something else. It's very much proving to us right here that that these people can, these people do, and they then choose to pursue something else. Um, I quite liked this one because this was another one that I didn't know before researching the show, but it's very interesting to me. Dan Brown was a teacher. Um, he was initially interested in being a musician um, and so he, like 
many US residents who want to move into the performing arts, he moved to Hollywood. Um, and in order to earn some money, uh, so again, teaching is a side hustle here, he taught classes at the Beverly Hills Prep School. Um, later, while he was becoming a writer, he taught English and Spanish in New Hampshire. And the reason that this one is particularly interesting to me is, is not just because I have aspirations of writing. Um, you know, it, it would be wrong of me to pretend that I don't because I've spoken on the show before about the things that I've had published, the, the things that I have in progress. So it is nice for me to see so many writers on the list. But also, as I was reflecting a few weeks ago, I realised the impact that the Da Vinci Code had on me. Um, now, I understand that this is not a very um, uh, a very prestigious thing to admit, because I've noticed there is a lot of negativity surrounding Dan Brown's works at the moment, or at least there has been um, over the past few years. But I did find the Da Vinci Code to be quite influential because I read it while I was in my first year of my B.Ed. And it was at that point that I realised that language and signs and semiotics could actually be a very cool, very interesting career path. Um, you know, I saw the character Robert Langdon, who was kind of like, I guess, like an Indiana Jones, but for things that I was good at. Because um, as much as I love history and I love classics, I couldn't cut it as an archaeologist. Um, I would have loved to, but I think being out in the in the sweltering sun all day excavating wouldn't be for me. Um, but I know that I can be a linguist, um, and I knew back then that I could be a linguist. And so seeing Robert Langdon being a linguist, understanding how language and signs and all of this stuff works, and having a very cool life while doing it, I found that to be really inspirational. Um, I must actually read those books again. Maybe that should be a summer project for me. Um, Jesse Williams of Grey's Anatomy is number 24 on my list. He taught American studies, African studies, and English for six years in Philadelphia. Um, he thought that he would be a career teacher. Uh, he wanted to be an actor but didn't think that it was a viable profession. Um, he was one of those, you know, acting is for other people, people. And so he was committed to being a teacher. Um, he taught for six years before getting his big break in the acting world. Roberta Flack has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Um, she is a critically acclaimed singer and songwriter. She taught music and English. I'm really hoping that this is giving inspiration not just to my PE colleagues, but to my English colleagues as well. Um, she taught in North Carolina, um, straight from graduating Howard University when she was 19. So that would have probably put her at the same age as many of her students, which I'm sure was a, a very unique, very interesting experience. Because, um, again, I trained as a primary school teacher. Uh, my very first placement was in a year six class. Uh, I was I was 18 or 19. So I was only kind of, you know, seven or eight years older than 
the kids I was teaching. But because of that developmental difference, you know, they were 11, I was 18, I felt like I was much older. Um, I didn't feel like the adult in the room. I felt like the class teacher was the adult. Uh, but I understood, you know, I, I did feel like an authority over the young children that I was teaching. So I can't imagine what it would have been like to go in and have to be the authority figure over people who are the same age as you. Um, I think at the age of 19, that was probably quite intimidating. Um, number 26, we have lead singer of the band Vampire Weekend, um, Ezra Koenig. He graduated from Columbia uh, he then went into the Teach for America program, which takes teachers and places them in some of the uh, most deprived um, or, or most difficult schools in the US. Uh, and he taught as an eighth grade teacher um, in Brooklyn uh, before becoming the lead singer and uh, I believe songwriter of a very, very well-known um, alternative band. 27, we have Chris Christofferson. Um, again, somebody that I don't know, but a country music singer who started off in the army where he had a very promising career, apparently. He then took a job teaching English um, at West Point, uh, but then he turned it down. Uh, so I don't know whether he actually taught uh, or, or whether he just kind of changed his mind after accepting the position. Uh, but he moved in 1965 to Nashville in order to pursue his music career. Well known to many of the students we teach in the UK. So again, if you are an English teacher and you didn't know this, it might be worth pointing out when you teach Lord of the Flies. But Sir William Golding uh, was in fact a teacher of English and philosophy in Salisbury. He stopped teaching in 1940 in order to join the Navy and then in 1954 he wrote Lord of the Flies which I think has been on the English syllabus for as long as it has been a book um, and for good reason. Uh, he did win the Nobel Prize for Literature off the back of that book so it is one that is very much worth studying. Bit more contemporary, one that, uh, that all of our students will have heard of, I am sure, Lin-Manuel Miranda. Um, he worked as, let's take a guess, we should do a poll, shouldn't we? What subject do you think Lin-Manuel Miranda taught? Yes, if you said English, you would be correct. <laughs> he taught English at Hunter College High School. Uh, which was in fact the school that he had attended. Um, while he was teaching, he had his side gig writing in the Heights, um, among other projects, and eventually he left teaching in order to pursue his um, very high profile musical theatre career. Um, he will be seen on Disney Plus playing Hermes in um, the Percy Jackson TV show when that drops. Number 30 on the list is Art Garfunkel. Um, he was a highly talented mathematician. Um, he taught maths at the Litchfield Prep School, um, 
just as Bridge Over Troubled Water was released. So again, he was managing to juggle both music and teaching, uh, and then eventually chose music as his career. In at number 31, Maya Angelou. Um, but again, she actually taught after becoming famous. Maya Angelou um, achieved critical acclaim for her work, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. She then taught at Wake Forest University from 1982 through to 2011. Um, and, and her motto, and I quite like this, was that she was not a writer who teaches, but she was a teacher who writes. And, and I like that because it shows where her priority was. Uh, I've discussed before on the show that I think anybody who writes for children is a teacher, because anybody who writes for children is extolling messages out to them through media that they consume. Uh, and, and it is always interesting then to see kind of which way round people consider themselves to be. Um, she, Maya Angelou said that her experience at university made her realise that she was a teacher who writes, that she chose to put teaching first, um, which I think is, is true of many of us. I think lots of people go into teaching not really sure if it's what they're going to do, if it's what they're going to stick with. Um, again, the, the high dropout rate in years one to five suggests that to be true. But I think many of us, particularly those of us who stay, realise that it is the profession itself that makes us realise why we do it. Um, and then I think that's why so many people, if you make it after those five years, you become a, a long service teacher. I think it's very hard to find people who teach for maybe 12, 15, 20 years, and then leave the profession. Um, I think you're either in it for a short time or, or a long time. Uh, but again, I've got nothing to back that up, only my own observations. Steve Wozniak in at number 32. Steve Wozniak, of course, left Apple. Um, I think that's probably the, the most diplomatic way to say it that won't get us in trouble. Um, the, um, the story behind what happened at at Apple is well known, well publicized. Um, different people have different versions of the events that happened, but Steve and Apple parted ways in the early 1980s. Um, he at that point decided he wanted to teach young children about computers, and so he taught computer classes to fifth through ninth graders um, in the US system. And finally, number 33 on my list, Raymond Joseph Teller, better known by his stage name Teller um, of the Penn and Teller duo, being the one who never speaks, um, which I find quite interesting. I don't know whether perhaps being a teacher just took all of the words away from him. Maybe he wanted some, um, some, some peace after teaching. But he, he appeals to my classicist heart because he is also a classicist. He taught Greek and Latin uh, in New Jersey. And that's it. Those are my 33, 33 celebrities who have former lives as teachers. This programme has been brought to you by The Happy Confident Company. 
Our clinically approved, ready-to-go wellbeing and mental health programme will help your pupils thrive. In only 10 minutes a day, you'll be able to deliver social and emotional learning and wellbeing tools throughout your school. To find out more, visit us at www.happyconfident.com. There are a couple of reasons that I wanted to do this show. Um, and now that I'm bringing it to a close, I'm actually very glad that I did uh, for my own development, if nothing else. Um, one of the reasons that I wanted to, to do it is because, as I've already said, as we see, teachers do get a, a broad deal, really, in the media, in the public consciousness. Um, because almost everybody goes to school, almost everybody has some kind of experience of a teacher, and the, the experiences that tend to stick, or at least experiences that get talked about, tend to be the negative ones. And so there is this perception um, amongst the public that, that teachers are, are not always good people. Um, there is as I mentioned a lot, the old adage that those who can do and those who can't teach. Uh, and there is the fact that we are famously low paid for the education that we have, the education that we need to go into our job, all of which kind of works against us in the zeitgeist. And so I thought it would be good for us just to see some, some people who the, the general public would consider to have made it um, to have reached the top of their game you know whatever we think about jk rowling's political views um you cannot deny how many individual copies harry potter has sold you cannot deny what a a world uh, phenomenon that was um sylvester stallone one of the biggest action stars that we have seen Stephen King, such a prolific writer, Hugh Jackman, such a range of talent, you know, going from Wolverine into musical theatre without missing a beat. These are all very talented, very talented people, very clever people. When we look at Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, Lyndon B. Johnson, uh, John Adams, all the people who went into law and into politics. And so I think it's quite good for us to remember that while we might not always get the the recognition we deserve we do count amongst our ranks very clever very talented people who had they chosen to remain in teaching probably would have been very successful in the career i think it is also good as as sad as it is for us to look at people who left the career and succeeded because I think when you are trying to decide whether or not to stay in teaching, it can be quite daunting. Because teaching does have a lot of perks. There is a regular salary. We do get the time away from school. You know, yes, we might still be marking. Yes, we might still be planning lessons, all of that stuff. But we do get time away from the building. Um, there are decent benefits. And so giving up the profession can be quite scary. And hopefully, if there is anybody thinking about it, um, hearing these success stories has been inspirational. Now, of course, this is not me guaranteeing success. Uh, I am not for one moment suggesting that we're 
I to give up my teaching career right now, I would be the next Stephen King or Lin-Manuel Miranda, as much as I would love to be. Um, but those people are out there. They did make a success of it. And, you know, perhaps any of us who might be thinking about leaving could make a success of it too. I also think it is quite interesting to see where our transferable skills can take us, because we do have a lot of skills. Um, I've already spoken about pedagogy and subject knowledge, but actually even beyond that, our ability to explain things, our ability to take very complex concepts and make them understandable to children, to young people who are hearing them for the very first time and having to make sense of them, that is a complex skill. Uh, that's a transferable skill. Um, our ability to go from 7.30 in the morning until 5.30 in the evening without eating, drinking, or going to the toilet, that has got to be, that has got to be a transferable skill that somebody somewhere can make use of. Our knowledge of photocopiers and how to unjam them, how to change toner, all while marking and teaching, all at the same time. That must also be transferable. So there's a lot of stuff that we can do, again, that if you have handed in your notice and you're not sure what to do next, you can take into your next job. 33 people did it and made a huge, huge success out of that transfer, out of that change. And I think if, if anybody listening is concerned about where their career is going next, um, you can listen to those stories and you can take heart. I am always interested in former teachers because I think that listening to former teachers can tell us a lot about the state of the profession and how to change it. And like I said in my in my little monologue at the top of the show, um, schools do not have their own culture. Schools are not designed to have their own culture. Because they are run using a small business model, they are a business culture applied to something that at its core is human. And I do think that quite often that's where teachers feel the disconnect because we are sitting in staff meetings that could have been emails or slacks um we are doing these parents evenings we are selling our school whilst also trying to make sure that we are giving each individual child in our class the best education that they can have so we are simultaneously having to juggle the business aspect of being in a school with the human aspect. And that's really difficult. That's really difficult, especially when there is no research, when there is no model for how we can take the human aspect, which in my opinion should be the center of a school and make it the center. When we are running our schools like businesses and expecting our teachers to be teachers, and to educate and look after and consider the well-being of our children. There is a dichotomy there that can lead very quickly to burnout. And I do wonder whether 
if we were to find a culture for schools so that they were no longer run like small businesses, but so that they could be run as schools, so that we could put the education at the centre instead of the popularity of the school, instead of having to get more bums on seats so that we can get the funding. I wonder whether that would prevent the burnout a little bit more. I wonder whether that would prevent the high dropout rates of teachers five years into their career. I wonder whether that would make children more inclined to be there because we would be able to take what they need, which is an education, and put that at the centre of everything that we were doing. I don't know. I don't know. Or maybe I should just try and become the next Stephen King. I mean, it's a thought. It really is a thought. I think we're going to leave it there today, Um, a little bit early, and I apologise for that, but um, I'm not going to just sit and ramble for an extra 10 minutes. Hopefully, though, you have all found this as enlightening as I did to look through and and hear some of the celebrities who have been in our shoes. Hopefully you have found it inspirational. Please, if you are now submitting a late resignation, don't don't quote me in your letter. Don't say, well, Darren said I can be uh, the next sliced alone, so I'm off, bye, Um, because that would get me in trouble. (laughs) But I would be interested. Please do connect with us. Um, You can connect with me directly. Um, at Mr. D. Lester, or one word on Twitter, or with Teachers Talk Radio. I would be interested to know how many of us are actually running side hustles like so many of these celebrities did. How many of us are writing on the side? Because I do. Um, I, Like I said, I make no secret of the fact that I write textbooks, I write courses, I write for journal articles. Um, I produce all sorts of stuff. Um, I know many social media teachers also run social media businesses on the side, producing content for teachers, producing resources. And so many of those celebs that we looked at had either a side hustle while they were teaching or used teaching as their side hustle while they were pursuing their creative works. I would be interested to know how prolific, how common that is. So please do get in touch with us. Again, like I said, either me personally, at Mr. D. Lester, M-R-D-L-E-S-T-E-R, or... uh, the Teachers Talk Radio account. And let us know, if you are side hustling, what are you doing? Why are you doing it? And um, is it something that you think you will ultimately leave teaching to do? Or is it just that you need something on the side to give yourself another outlet, perhaps something a bit more creative? Please do stay tuned today. We've got Eugene coming up at five uh, with his show, which is always fascinating. Eugene always has some great ideas of of things that we can do, things that we should talk about. We have got another great week of hosts um, over the week. So please do keep an eye every time we go live. Listen out to some new people. See what you can learn. Construct that knowledge together. And I will be back with you for breakfast next Saturday. Thank you very much and goodbye. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.